Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be together on the Lord's Day, especially on this special occasion as we see many baptized this morning. What a wonderful thing. And see others uh, join the church and fellowship uh, it is a, a good Lord's Day and we're thankful to the Lord for it. Um, we are in Acts chapter 4, as uh, Benji has already read for us. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 4 from verse 1 to 22. I asked him to read for us so that I don't read it, so that we, we can have a, a shorter message than normal uh, in light of all the, the different activities that are happening today. Um, I was talking to Mashwane about the need to shorten the sermon this morning. And he said, all I need to do is just remove all the jokes and all the Liverpool references. <laughs> so I've managed to disobey him in one sentence. Um, but uh, uh, yes, we're in Acts chapter 4. And we come now, we saw last week, as you'll remember, uh, we saw the healing of a lame man, a wonderful sign that was pointing to the, the, the coming age, the taste of the, of the heaven to come. Uh, when when, when, uh, when the, the resurrection occurs and there will be no diseases and how all of that points uh, to the man Jesus Christ. And, the, and the, the text in front of us this morning in Acts chapter 4 tells us what happened after the Lord had healed the man and Peter had proclaimed the message of salvation in the Lord's name. And two things occur after Peter preaches. Uh, we didn't see anything occur after in chapter 3, but we see it now in chapter 4. Two things occur which are generally a staple result of the faithful proclamation of the gospel. One thing that we see happening is that people receive the message, and the other thing we see is opposition to the message. Um, you might say that it is understandable that people receive the message. Right? After all, this is really good news. You see, Peter is not just trying to sell people ice cream. Uh, what he's telling people is really good news, really excellent news. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Men and women can have resurrection in his name for free. Uh, without paying anything, he's, he's offering everyone life, true life at that. Now, we, If we truly understand the message and we understand what the message truly means, then we'll all expect people to receive it. It makes sense to see people receiving it because this is the greatest news ever spoken. But unfortunately, that's not how things work on planet Earth. Because of the existence of evil and Satan having his agents, there also arises against the message, against the rule of Jesus Christ, opposition. You see, up until this point in the narrative, we had felt as if we are, to, we are soon to experience heaven. 
What, what have we seen so far in the book of Acts as we've been uh, walking through it? We have seen two spectacular miracles. The speaking of tongues in Acts chapter 2 and the healing of a lame man in Acts chapter 3. We have heard two rousing and powerful sermons by Peter uh, which, which point us to the man Jesus Christ who calls all of us to life. We've also seen a massive revival where 3,000 people were saved at once. And, and, the, and then we also saw a, a description of the idyllic heavenly community in Acts chapter 2 of the church. When the church was gathered together, how they lived together, caring for one another, not counting their own possessions as their own, but wanting to share them with others. We have seen wonderful things so far. It's been inspiring, wonderful, heavenly. But here in chapter 4, Luke focuses his attention on opposition and in doing so, he brings us right back down to earth. In this text, the leaders of the Israelites refuse to repent for murdering Christ. And instead, they attempt to gag the disciples' message in the very same way that they attempted to gag their Lord uh, when he was walking the earth. The first thing that Luke brings to our attention then is that the apostles were arrested for preaching that Christ offers resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. The Sadducees here who are really leading this group, what you see here is the, you have the, the priest, the, the captain of the temple, uh, who's basically the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees all together. And the, the, the people who are leading this arrest are the Sadducees uh, because of their annoyance at the, at the message that is being preached. The Sadducees were a religious and political group that had opposed Jesus as well while he was here on earth. And they come here to arrest the believers, not because that they've, not, they arrest the apostles rather, not because they've done anything specifically wrong, but because they are annoyed at the message of the resurrection of the dead. You see, the Sadducees were committed to a doctrine, and that doctrine is this, that when people die, that's the end. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They did not believe anything after that. So David, the prophets, anything after the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, they did not believe in. They didn't hold to angels, anything like that. And so they're annoyed that, they're, that here are the apostles preaching that just like Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, ate and walked and is alive in the very same way Anyone who believes in him will, will rise again from the dead. And these guys find it completely annoying to them. And so they, they, they bring this, this arrest to occur. Luke tells us this. Luke tells us specifically the reason that they were imprisoned for. Um, so that we might know that they were not imprisoned for actual wrongdoing. But for a disagreeable theology to the Sadducees. See, Luke is concerned for us to know that the apostles were not people who were causing chaos for chaos' sake, but rather they were preaching the gospel and then they were imprisoned for it. This is extremely important. You'll remember that this book is written to Theophilus, 
so that he might be sure of the truth, so that Theophilus might be certain of the things that he has been already taught. And the truth here is that though the apostles were arrested time and time again, they were not imprisoned for inciting violence, they were not imprisoned for a political activism, they were not imprisoned for any range of things, they were only and specifically imprisoned because they preached the gospel that is the resurrection to life. This is important because this is, this is an apologetic by Luke. This is what Christianity is. Christianity is not a thing that comes to an area and tries to cause chaos. You see, because the leaders of Christianity keep being imprisoned throughout the book of Acts. And so we're wondering, what is it that we're doing? What is it that, our, what is the, is it that the leaders of this religion are doing if they're always getting imprisoned? And Luke wants us to know that the only reason that they're being imprisoned is not because they're jerks, not because they're trying to change laws, not because they're, they're being these people who are loud and bombastic. It's only because they were preaching the gospel message. This is an important thing for us to know, and it has implications for us as well. We need to think in that way that, the, that in one sense, the main disagreeable thing about us is the gospel. The main thing uh, for us is the gospel. And so that's the thing that we will go to prison for. If we have to. We're not going to go to prison for stealing. We're not going to go to prison for doing all kinds of nonsense, breaking the speed limit, doing all kinds of, of things that are unnecessary. Um, if they take us to prison, let them take us to prison for preaching the gospel. The second thing that Luke tells us here is that while Peter and John were imprisoned, people were being saved at the message. Look at verse 4. But many of those who heard the word when Peter preached and throughout the time, uh, uh, the word, they heard the word and they believed it. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. While the apostles were being arrested, this had no effect on the effectiveness of their witness. The Lord continued to save, and the number of the church grew now to reach 5,000. Now notice something. This is the third time now that Luke is telling us about numbers. Okay? It's actually the fourth time uh, that Luke has been telling us about numbers. He told us about the initial group of 120, but then he told us that 3,000 people were added after Peter, Peter preached. And then he also told us that day after, at the end of chapter 2, he told us that day by day, the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. And now he's telling us, he's pausing his narrative to tell us that the message produced more fruit. Now the number came to 5,000. And I ask, why? Why is Luke so committed to telling us about numbers and about people joining the church, how big the church is? Why is he so concerned to such a degree that he pauses the flow of his narrative? You see this line in verse 4 seems to be like, it just seems out of place. You could read from verse 3 and continue. Why did he feel the need to add verse 4? Well, this is something that you need to understand about Luke. Luke is interested in promise and fulfillment. Luke is all about telling us that there were promises and here they are now fulfilled. So by telling us the numbers and how, how massively the church is growing, 3,000 day by day being added and now 5,000, he wants us to see that what God said to Abraham, he meant. 
When God spoke to Abraham and said, I will give you as a, a descendants, as many descendants as there are stars. Luke wants us to see that now that this is the time of that being fulfilled. God, when, when God said to Abraham that through him the nations shall be blessed, he really meant it. He wasn't just saying something into the air. And so that is what, for that same reason, that is why we also need to care about numbers. This is why we also need to care about people being saved. As with everything, there are always extremes, dear Christians. There is a temptation for some to make everything about numbers. So the, the main thing is numbers. How big the church is and how many people are being saved. That's the main thing. Which can lead to pragmatism and weakening of the message so that the numbers can grow. So it's no longer about God actually blessing the nations and giving people true life. But it ends up just being about that particular church and its size. That is a distortion. And we must make sure, dear heritage, that we do not fall into that distortion. But there is also another temptation. And that is a temptation to not care about numbers at all. To not care about, about the church growing at all. To not care about seeing people baptized and saved at all. There is a pride in thinking that you're so faithful that you stand alone. But church, we must be uncomfortable with not seeing God save people among us. We must be uncomfortable. We must ask why. Are we adding any barriers to people? Are, we adding, are there certain things that we're doing that are, making, that are making it hard for people to hear our message? Peter tells us in, in, in 1 Peter that the reason that the Lord Jesus Christ is taking long in returning is so that His, his people would come in. The reason that he is tarrying is so that the people, he doesn't want any one of his people to be lost. The full number of his people that he loves, he wants all of them to come in. So in a sense, the reason we're still here is so that we can see people come in. While we have opportunity, all things being equal, while we have opportunity, we must seek to see people saved. We must seek to see the numbers grow. Today, we will see 11 baptisms. On the 21st of November, we will see about the same, if not more. This is the most baptisms we have seen at Heritage within the span of a month in our history. We ought to be thankful. We ought to praise God that we are able to see so many stories of His matchless grace. When you see these numbers listed here by Luke, 123,000, and number day by day, 5,000, these aren't just numbers. These are everlasting souls. These are everlasting souls who were in darkness, who were completely lost, wandering the earth without God and have now been reconciled to Him. It, this, is, this is a cause for rejoicing. In the same way here this morning, these 11 people being baptized and these 14 who are being added to our number today, these are real people who have real stories, real serious sin in their past, brokenness in their past, but now God by His mercy invaded their lives, turned them from darkness to light. This is a cause for celebration. If we were charismatic, you'd be saying amen. <laughs> 
Jew, Jew Baptists are just staring at me. Let me encourage us, dear saints, to ensure that our affections, our emotional life, our affections are affected by God's saving grace in the lives of other people. Don't be a stoic when it comes to people being saved. This is a cause for celebration. Pay attention to this. We exist to see people come to Christ. We are witnesses of the mercies of God and we are heralds of that message as a church. Notice what I did not say. I did not say we exist only to see people saved. Okay, that's a very important distinction. But while we're still here and Jesus has not returned, we have to gird our loins and work and pray so that many people would be saved among us. Well then, these men are arrested and uh, they're, they're put in prison overnight. Uh, the trial is going to be the following day. And Luke tells us here that 5, 000, the number now reaches 5,000. So what happens on the next day? Look, look with me at verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in, the, in their midst, they inquired of them, by what power or by what name did you do this? So, Peter and John have been held overnight in prison. And when they get to the trial before the rulers and elders of Israel, they ask, by what power or on whose power or on whose name, essentially whose authority, did they heal this man and then gone on to preach this message of the resurrection? This is a question of authority. We, as the people who are in charge of everybody who preaches in the temples, we did not give you the right to do these things. Who did? We did not give you the right to preach this resurrection. Who did? We do not give you the right to go around performing miracles. Who gave you this right? In Luke chapter 20 and verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes asked the Lord Jesus exactly the same question after he had whipped the people in the temple and then he continued on to preach the good news. But what we have in front of us is not just a question of authority, it's also a question of power. How were you able to make this man walk? This man has never walked in his whole life. What power did you access such that this man can walk? And you have to understand that this is actually a sideways accusation. Because there were people who were doing miracles by magic. There were people along that time was a big deal that and it was illegal in Israel to perform magic. So this question is not really trying to get to the root of the issue. This question is inserting did you guys use magic to perform this? Did you guys consult some witchcraft to have this happen? Did you guys use the power of Beelzebul in order to make this man happen? What? We didn't give you the right. And here you are preaching. And now there's a man walking. Did you guys talk to the Songomas about this? Well, Peter responds by reiterating the same message that he relayed in chapter 3. Look at verse 8. 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I want you to notice a few things here. The Holy Spirit empowers Peter, and Peter witnesses to the same truth that he has already witnessed to two times in the past. That Jesus is the one. The one who was killed by these very leaders. That Jesus is the one who has made this man well. And what he says here, as he gives testimony in his own trial, is exactly the same as the evangelistic testimony that he gave in chapter 2 and chapter 3 in front of the crowds. But notice that the message does not change. The facts of the case do not change. The message that is to be proclaimed in front of rulers and in front of common people is the same. I want to press on on this. I want you to see how, the, 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 see how similar it is. And, and notice the wonder in that. Notice here that he confronts them with their guilt in the way that he confronted the people of Israel with their guilt. You see, he says, you rejected him. You killed him. You are guilty of his death. But he is the cornerstone that you rejected. In the same way that he laid the guilt to the people in the two chapters prior, here he's doing the same thing. But also I want you to notice that he makes it clear to them that this is a sign of a man, this is a sign also for them that they might know that there is no other name by which anyone can receive salvation. You see, in Acts chapter 2. While the people were, after they, they saw the men speaking in different languages, they were wondering, what's going on? What's the meaning of this? And he said, you're guilty. But this is a sign that even, even you, who are guilty, who killed the Lord of glory, you can be welcomed in. You can be forgiven. Your sins can be cleansed if you repent. And not only that, but you will receive the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 3, he says exactly the similar message to the crowds after the, this man was healed. And he's coming now to them, doing the same thing. Jesus Christ is the one. You guys killed him. You guys are guilty. But you must know this. There is no other name for you to go to to be saved. What he's doing there is that he's, he's offering to them a hand of fellowship. He's saying, if you repent... And come to this very same name. You, if even this sin that you guys did can be forgiven in him. You guys plotted and schemed the, the, as the builders of Israel. You rejected the cornerstone. But even that, you can receive salvation. You see, he is offering them salvation in the name of Christ. You would expect, now if you think with me for a second here. You would expect that these guys who were the ones who plotted and rejected Christ, that they would have committed the unforgivable sin. Think about it for a second. These men, these, these men are the same men who went into a corner and said, we need to find a way to kill Jesus for no reason. 
This is the same, this is the same uh, uh, board. This is the same court that decided Jesus' guilt before they were able to determine whether he's guilty or not. They decided he has to be guilty and so therefore he must be killed. You would expect then that, that, that even though others, the crowds, who, who shouted and wanting him to be killed at the inciting of these leaders, you'd expect that the crowds can be forgiven, but not these guys, surely not. Surely not these guys. Think, for example, with me at the recent looting, looting spree in KZN. If anyone stole anything, we know that they are guilty. But the people that we feel most angry at, the people that we feel most deserve great punishment are the people who incited people to do all these things. Because they're the ones who were plotting and scheming to cause the evil to happen. You would expect them to be punished more harshly, but no. Look at what Peter does. Peter gives them the very same gospel that he gave the crowds. He offers them the very same hope that he offered everyone else. There is, even though they have committed a massive sin greater than even that of the crowds, he offers them the very same gospel. He says to them that even your sin can be cleansed by the same name. You guys, go to the same person. Go to the same man. There's no other name. You guys don't need a more special name, a, 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 perhaps a different category for, you, for your sins to be saved. The rest of the people, because of their small sins, they go to Jesus. But you guys, you need something else because you guys really did something serious. No, it's the same name. There's only one name. I hope you can see where I'm going with this. How big is your sin? How big is your sin? How, what have you done? That is unspeakable, detestable, you're shamed of. How big is your sin? The very same blood of Christ that has been washing people's sins for 2,000 years is enough even for you. There is no other category, no one else to run to. The very same name that you've heard, the name of Jesus Christ, the free forgiveness in Him, the ver- that same name is the one you are to cry out to. There's no special category for you. If you feel particularly ashamed at your sin, particularly sore, wanting that something else must happen, or maybe I need to go to someone else. No. It's the same name. The blood of Christ is enough even for us. Let me talk to you, dear Christian. You, having sinned again, even though you know the goodness of God. You, you who know the goodness of God, You've been baptized, you've been walking with the Lord, but you, you, you keep sinning. You keep messing up. And there are certain times where you don't want to bring the sin to Him. You want to hide it, you want to fix things. But do you know what exactly it is that you need? What is it that you need? Okay, everybody else needs Jesus, but what do you need? The same Jesus. The same sacrifice. You need the same one. You who have have sinned and offended God even after He has done marvelous things for you. You need the same gospel. There is no new gospel for you. There is no special place for you. It's the same Christ because Christ died and rose again and His sacrifice was enough once and for all. There's there's only one place for us to go for our eternal hope. Don't look for another gospel. Don't look for penance. Don't look for something else to do. Believe the same gospel every day. 
This is why Michael and I are committed to reminding you, indeed you, you, member of Heritage Baptist who knows the gospel so well, it is why we're so committed every week with all the theology that you know. We're committed to reminding you of that very same gospel. You don't graduate beyond it. It's the same message that you need. He offers the same gospel to these, ruler, uh, to these rulers. He says there's no other name for us to be saved. Even though you guys have killed the Messiah, you can be saved in that one name. But unlike the rest of the crowds, sadly, these rulers have no ears to hear the gospel. Instead, they continue to plot. Look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, Okay, so what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Luke tells us here that they were first surprised, astonished at Peter and John's boldness in light of the fact that they were not educated in the law and they were simple men. The clarity with which they spoke, the biblical precision, biblical precision which they had confounded them. This was also coupled with the recognition that these men were the same men who were with Jesus. They recognized them as being with Jesus. And the same court had had serious difficulties catching Jesus out in doctrinal debate because he had confounded them over and over again. And seeing this healed man beside them as a witness, they were not able to bring any charge against them. They were not able to, de to deny that the miracle happened. Here's the guy standing there healed. And what Luke means by this is, is that there was nothing of substance. When, they, they can, when he says that they were not able to say anything in opposition, this is what he's saying. There was nothing of substance that was real and truthful that they could say, that could be used to get these men to be silenced. They could, threat, they could threaten them, sure, which they will see, we'll see that in just a moment. They could berate them, they could shout at them, but there is nothing of substance that they could say that will stand in the court. So they know that they need to let them go. But because they are clearly committed to something other than the truth, these men do not repent and believe. Think about it. What's the right response here for these men? I, after having been told that they killed the Lord of glory, and this same Lord of glory is now making people walk, what do you think they should be doing? After being told that here's the one name that they can be saved by, they should be following the example of the crowds. In chapter 2, three, in chapter two we saw... The crowd said, what shall we do? Okay, what, what can be done? We're guilty. What, what must we do? 
And we, we saw that people were receiving the message, but these guys, they're, they're, they're not interested. They're, because they have a commitment to something else, they're not really committed to the truth. They don't care what the truth is. They can see this man has been healed. They, know, they, they hear this man has been being preached in Jesus' name. They know that Jesus was a miracle worker. They, they're not interested in the truth of the matter. They're not interest, interested in the fact that God has spoken. They don't care. They're committed to something else. They're committed to their own power, to keeping the status quo in Israel. And thus, the truth to them doesn't matter. You see, what we have in front of us is not just a normal court case, dear friends. It's not just a court case, court case where we determine whether you're guilty or not and then it ends there. The testimony that Peter gave and the visible sign of this man who is standing here healed suggests to the rulers that these rulers have an obligation to listen to what God is saying now. It is known in Israel that when God is speaking and bringing a message, He comes with signs. That's what he did with Moses. That's what he did with Elijah and Elisha. That's what he did with Jesus and the apostles. It is known to them that God is speaking. They can see it, but they are not willing to bend the knee. This is not just any kind of court case here. It's either Peter and John are guilty of witchcraft or God has spoken. There's no middle ground. In the face of all the proof that Jesus is the name to come to, they do not respond in faith. They do not respond in repentance. Listen to me. Is it possible that you're here this morning not convinced of Christianity because you say you need more proof? But perhaps the proof you need has been staring you in the face. Is it possible, like these men, that the actual reason you're not trusting in Jesus is not the lack of proof, but rather other commitments? You're committed to other things. See, these men were committed to the way the things have always been. The order of things that they know. They want to still be in charge. They do not want to bow down to Christ. Because that would mean a complete change of everything for them. Is it possible, dear friend, this morning, that you are not believing in Christ because you're committed to living a particular lifestyle? It is obvious to you that you need to come get right with God. It is obvious to you that you need to do business with God and find a way to, so, to settle your account with Him. There is a nagging feeling, a persistent sense that you will not rest until you come to God and have your sins cleared. But you are still arguing, still fighting, still not trusting in God, still not repenting. Why? Why would you deny reality? Don't these men look foolish to you, my friend? Don't these men look foolish? They're denying something that's obvious to them. Why, why join them in foolishness? Why, why, would you, why would you deny what is obvious? You know you need to get right with God. You know that your sins need to be forgiven. You know that you will not, if you were to die today, you will not stand in front of Him guiltless. You know this. Why are we still having this useless conversation? Why are you not repenting, trusting in Him and believing in Him? Let me encourage you to stop denying reality and come to Christ. There is forgiveness for you freely. Stop denying Christ. Stop, stop denying reality. Stop this guilt that you have is not just going to disappear. Yeah, you might be able to, to satiate it some days, but it's, it's going to come back. You need 
a glorious man to take it away. You need the clean, purifying blood of the Lamb to take it away. And you will not rest until He does so. Come to Him. But the, the, the example of these men has another lesson for us, dear friends, this morning. Proverbs 6, verse 16 to 19, lists seven things that God absolutely hates. That He, he finds to be an abomination does not want to even see these things. And one of those things nestled in there is a false witness who breathes out lies. A false witness who breathes out lies about other people. In disagreements, my dear friends, and especially when it comes to conversations about other people, it is a horrendous sin to try to perpetuate a narrative about someone that is against the facts. It is an evil thing to try and continue to perpetuate a narrative about someone that is clearly against the facts. We must be truthful witnesses and not false ones. We must be people who are committed to the truth. We must be people who are committed to, to exactly what the truth of God is and not what we want the narrative to say. Are you with me? These men are not interested in exactly what the truth of God is. These men don't care what God thinks about the situation because God is speaking loudly in front of them, but they are committed to their agenda. And so they will try and twist things and try and threaten and try and do all kinds of things and scheme in order to not listen to God. But let me encourage you, dear saints, be a truth seeker, not someone who pushes forward with lies even when the facts are clear to your face that it is not so. Make sure that you are a truth seeker. Make sure that, especially when you're dealing with other people, when you're dealing about saying what other people did or what other people say, make sure that you know what you're talking about, that you have the facts in front of you and you can back them up. Do not, God hates slander. God hates uh, uh, false witnessing about someone else. Well, not only do they not believe, but they decide to go ahead, as we see here, to tell the apostles to not preach. You see what they do? They, say, they, now, they, they, they want to coerce the apostles to not preach the gospel. They don't, want, they don't want God to be doing what God does now. Look at verse 17. But in order that they may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Do you see the foolishness of coming before God with an agenda? Now, these men don't want God to do what God does. They don't want more miracles. They can't handle more miracles. They don't want more miracles because more miracles means that they are, they, it's becoming clearer and clearer to the people that they are wrong. They don't want more people saved. They don't care about people being reconciled to God. They don't care about people's souls. They want to shut the whole thing down because they are committed to an agenda. It's not the first time that they've done this. They did the same thing with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, Matthew tells us that after Christ rose from the dead, the guards who saw it happen went to the, to the priests to tell them what happened. They got there and told them, we were there, we were guarding, we didn't fall asleep, and all of a sudden, the thing's shaking, the, the stone rolled, and the guy just walked. What would you expect from the priests of Israel at that time? 
You'd expect them to tear their clothes. You'd expect them to, to be out walk, to run to the tomb themselves to try and see. But no, this, well, what has just happened is the greatest, most cataclysmic miracle in history. Greater even than the parting of the Red Sea. Greater than the sun stopping for Joshua. You'd expect them to be excited. You'd expect them to jump, to jump and go to God. But no. Instead, because they are committed to the agenda, what do they do? Matthew tells us that they paid the guards to tell everyone that Jesus' body was stolen by the disciples. What nonsense. This is the nonsense of being committed to an agenda and not listening to what God is saying clearly in front of you. And dear saints, the lesson for us is this. We need to be aware of evil. We must be aware of evil. We must not be naive. Luke is telling this to us because the Old Testament told us that the nations will rage against the Messiah. Toss for a second your eyes to verse 25 of this text. We'll see this next time we're in Acts. But toss your eyes. The church, when the church prays, they recognize that this is what's going on. It's the nations raging against the Messiah. Look at verse 25. Who through the mouth of, of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? That's what's going on. These people are proving themselves to be Gentiles. There are nations who are raging and plotting. And it makes no sense. Such that God asks, why would you rage? Why would you fight a losing battle? You're fighting against God. And that's what they're doing. The nations, we, we must be aware of this. We must be aware of evil. The nations will not receive the rule of Jesus Christ without a fight. The nations want to rule themselves. And you can rest assured, He will overcome them. But they want to rule themselves. And so when, when we go out with the message, as, as we go out as witnesses to Christ's mercy, we must be ready for serious and mind-numbing pushback from lost men. We will see both by God's grace. We'll see people receiving the message, but we must also be aware and we must not be naive to the fact that there will be serious, mind-numbing pushback in the face of a glorious gospel, a gospel that is free, a gospel that is wonderful. People will still fight back. So let, do not let, don't think that something strange is happening to you. When people do evil things to you or say evil things about you because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, we must be aware of it. But in the face of that opposition, in the face of that opposition, our task remains steadfast. Our examples are the apostles. Look at how they respond when they are told to not preach the gospel. Look at how they respond in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punishment, punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This was a notable miracle. So they couldn't do anything other than threaten them and threaten them. But they couldn't do anything more than that. But look at how Peter, Peter and John respond to opposition. Peter and John ask them a question in, in which they have no response to. 
Should we listen to you or should we listen to God? You'd expect these men to come back and say, no, God didn't say anything. Have you ever thought, thought about it? Think about this. Should we listen to you or should we listen to God? These men are supposed to jump up now and say, no, 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 God didn't say anything. No, no, you guys are not listening to God. You, it's just you're wrong. But they don't come back with anything. Because they know that at this particular juncture, who are they fighting against? God. They're fighting against God. Jesus told the parable about them um, before he died and said that it was a parable about the fact that they, God keeps sending prophets to them, keeps sending prophets to them, and they, they, they hurt them, they beat them. And then when they saw the son, God's son, who's the owner of the vineyard, when they saw him coming, they decided, let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. These men know exactly what they're doing. They're now opposing God. They're so determined um, to fight against God that they, this is what they do. And so the, the, the apostles do not waver and quiver. The apostles say, you, whether it is right to listen to you or other than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. My dear friends, our, our resolve must be steadfast to continue in what God calls us to, regardless of the opposition to our message. Dear Heritage Baptist, we must resolve as a church to do what God says. We must resolve to do it. We must resolve that we will not change the gospel to make anyone happy. You, dear church, have a responsibility to never tolerate anyone in this pulpit who refuses to preach apostolic doctrine. It is your responsibility to ensure that here at church, the, the messages that are coming here are in line with apostolic doctrine. As a church, we must not bow down to people who want to tell us that our gospel is outdated, that our message needs to be amended, and that Jesus is not king. Our resolve in the face of those who oppose the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, must be steadfast. One of the reasons Michael and I decided to preach through Acts is because after a year like last year, we need a fresh injection of clarity as to what it is that we must be committed to as a church. We need a fresh injection of what it is. What is the thing that we don't budge on? What is the thing that we dig our heels in on? Because there's, there are many commitments out there vying for our, your attention. Everyone, every corner you look, someone is telling you, this is the important thing, don't budge on this. This is the important thing, don't budge on this. But dear church, the example of the apostles is this, that the thing that we do not budge on is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the thing we don't budge on. The apostles show us here that our commitment to Christ and his, and his gospel is what we will not budge from. We will be teachable on many things. We must acknowledge this. There are not many things that we will be teachable on. There are many things that we will change our minds on. Many, we, we, we will grow and understand things in different ways. There, there's a lot of fluidity and a lot of things that are out there that we will, we will change our minds on. But if there's one thing that we will never bend on... If there's one thing that we are unteachable on, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our responsibility to proclaim it exactly as it is. 
Let me encourage you, dear saints, to, 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 to hold to this, to, to, to emulate as you go out and, 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 and preach and witness to the wonders of God, as you find opposition with colleagues, with friends, with family, remain steadfast on the gospel. Sure, bend. If, if, if your family wants to eat coleslaw instead of chakalaka, it's fine. Okay, it's fine. But when it comes to the gospel, respectfully, you will not bend. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, why do the nations rage? Why do the nations fight? How can they not see the beauty of your matchless name? How can they not see this wonder that you are king, exalted on your throne, and that all men, all flesh must bow down to you? Oh, we ask, Lord, by your mercy and grace, that you would help us to be steadfast in the face of opposition. Oh Lord, we want to thank you for, for drawing us in, in our sin. We want to thank you for, for drawing us even whereas we were those who opposed you ourselves. But by your mercy and grace, you, overcome, you overcame us and you brought us into your kingdom. And we pray, Lord, that you do the same for our friends, for our colleagues, for our acquaintances, for many people that we love, for our family members, for extended family members. We pray that you do the same especially those who are in opposition to your message. By your mercy, you would, may you overcome them and help them to see the wonder of the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we would continue in this, that we would grow in boldness in proclaiming this, uh, that we would not quiver and shake. And even as we do quiver and shake, that we would look up and get strength from you to preach the message with boldness and with clarity. We pray this in your, in your name. Amen.